Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast, gathering evidence from the literature again with my friends Jacob and Cray. Thanks for being here, team. Great to see you again. Before we get into this episode, the Ultrasound Gel team is actually looking to invite some fresh blood onto the team. In particular, we really would love a creatively minded person who's interested in making infographics for the podcast and the associated blog posts. Now, this position is not paid, but it does reap incalculable rewards and intangible benefits through working on this team and continuing to broadcast the importance of evidence-based point-of-care ultrasound. So there's no real requirements for experience or level of training, although that would probably help. We mainly just want someone who believes in the product and the message and wants to serve this community with your abilities. So shoot me an email, mike at ultrasoundgel.org. Without further ado, why don't you kick us off with this case? This case is point-of-care ultrasound findings in the case of orbital cellulitis, a case report. It is by a few authors that I'm not super familiar with, but we definitely have Joe Min on there, Joseph Minardi, good friend of ours. This is actually a pretty interesting case. I love ocular ultrasound, and it's just like a case report of finding orbital cellulitis with using that ultrasound. I definitely would check out those images. They're quite interesting. I don't think I would have picked up on them. And a great case, and maybe someday we'll even get like a big study on this. Who knows? Now, the meat of the podcast today. The article is called Quantitative Characterization of Left Ventricular Function During Pulseless Electrical Activity Using Echocardiography During Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. And if you look at the author list, you probably would know everyone's name. Here's what's going on with this topic. We know that the initial rhythm in the arrest really matters in terms of both what you're going to do with that patient and how that patient is going to do. Now, so far with the history of where we are with ultrasound, we know that presence or absence of cardiac activity on ultrasound has been shown to correlate with survival, at least return of spontaneous circulation. Interestingly, there's also been shown through the work of Romulo Gaspari et al. that if you take patients in PEA, there's probably two different classes of patients, people with true PEA, electrical-mechanical dissociation, and people that actually just have really bad cardiac contractility, and so you technically don't feel a pulse. And that's been termed pseudo-PEA by other people, and there's lots of literature on that that we won't get into. But basically, if you can identify these two different groups by ultrasound, some people have said that maybe you can actually treat them differently. And the main difference would be that if they're in this pseudo-PEA, perhaps they would benefit from a vasopressor infusion instead of these giant boluses of epinephrine that we are want to do in ACLS. So that leads us to where we are now. The authors in this study hypothesize that not only does the presence or absence of cardiac activity matter, but perhaps even the degree of myocardial function can be related to the outcome. So this is a pretty important question. Nobody has looked at this before. And instead of the question, a binary yes beating or no beating, maybe they're asking, we want to know how well is it beating in these PEA arrest patients. Cray, tell us about this study. How'd they go about this? So what did they do? They had 20 sites in the US and Canada over a four-year period, 2011 to 2014. This is essentially a sub-analysis of the reason data. What they did is looked at the patients who came in with PEA as their initial rhythm, and they used their initial inclusion criteria, which was out of hospital or ED cardiac arrest. They had to be asystole or PEA, but this kind of subpopulation that they were interested in was that PEA population. They could not be traumatic. They could not have ROSC within five minutes, and they could not have an active DNR. 
if they could not calculate the fractional shortening because of subpar image quality were excluded for this subset analysis. So this was a retrospective study. It again was using the original reason trial data and they had an initial scoring system, which was a one through five of image quality that was fairly qualitative. For this study, they wanted that image quality rating to be a little bit more precise. So they still had a one through five scale, but they did kind of elaborate a little bit more on what was a good image. Three or higher were included in the study. And what those images included were fair image quality that they could see general cardiac activity. They could do a visual kind of analysis of it, but they could not necessarily do a quantitative analysis. A four was good image quality and they could do a quantitative function level, but they maybe could not do the fractional shortening. And then a five, they could actual do fractional shortening, excellent image quality. So those were the ones they included. Ones and twos were excluded in this study. So the way they did this, the images did not have to have a motor fractional shortening done at the time of acquisition. The researchers actually used a modify tool to retrospectively apply it to the images to do the quantitative fractional shortening measurements. And so for those who don't know what fractional shortening is, it's when you take your end diastolic diameter minus your end systolic diameter and divide it by your end diastolic diameter. And normal is a number greater than 25%. Their primary outcome was, was there ROSC? The secondary outcome was survival to hospital admission. And they assessed these using a linear regression, looking at the correlation between the fractional shortening and their outcomes of interest. If I understand correctly, it sounds like they took this data set, which was originally prospectively collected. They now retrospectively analyzed it, looking at just the PEA rhythm patients. They scored the echoes based on their quality, and they took the reasonable quality ones, did a fractional shortening, and they're trying to see, does fractional shortening correlate with ROSC? You nailed it. Cool. All right, Jacob, what happened? What What is the outcome? So I love the reason trial, by the way. I refer to it all the time, and I'm glad they're able to get some other stuff out of it. So the original reason trial had 793 patients. They looked at 312 of the subset of those patients, those with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and PEA. And then out of those, only 29.2% had images that were good enough to perform that calculation. They actually excluded another seven because they had regional wall motion abnormalities. That's interesting, right? Because those patients had an MI and that's why they were that way, but also messes up the fractional shortening calculation because not the entire ventricle is not moving the same. They ended up with a number of 84 patients. Can't wait to hear what uh, Cray has to think about this, but with regards to their primary outcome, they found an association between the LV fractional shortening and ROSC. They found an odds ratio of 1.04, which is not super great, but it shows that there's a 4% increase in the odds of ROSC with patients that have a higher LV fractional shortening. They did some other analyses too, which is kind of interesting, which is honestly questions that I would have had as well. So they had patients with the lowest EF and then patients with higher end of that EF, and they tried to see what the probability of ROSC was on their patients. So the lowest lowest quartile of fractional shortening, so that's 0 to 4.7%. They had a 47% probability of ROSC. And the highest quartile, which is 234 to 96%, had a 75% probability of ROSC. That's some super wide 
interesting confidence intervals as well. So I don't know if I would, I mean, it's a bit of kind of like a data mining thing too, to pick those numbers, you know, zero to 4.7 versus 23.4 to 96% for the highest. But I still think it shows that if you have a higher ejection fraction, you have a higher probability of ROS, which kind of matches up to, I think, what most people think. It's what I think at least. They found no significant correlation between that PEA score that they made and the ROS. And they also found no association between the LVFS or the LV fractional shortening and any of the clinical variables like downtime, duration of resuscitation, sonographer experience, or the amount of epi they had received. And Jacob, just because you brought up the confidence intervals, I have to point out that for their primary outcome, the odds ratio of 1.04, the 95% confidence interval does dip down to 1.01. If it were to hit 1.00, that would technically be no longer significant because an odds ratio of one means that there's no greater chance of the outcome. So I guess here we are, guys. What do we do with this study? I mean, I appreciated that this is probably the best cohort of arrest patients that got ultrasounds. It's not a ton of patients, but it's probably close to as good as we're going to get for some something that's so specific as out-of-hospital PEA arrest that got an ultrasound. I liked that they made this quality scale so we can kind of see, you know, how good is the ultrasound and what is going on with the heart. That's an interesting idea. And they did their due diligence with regard to their statistics analysis. So that's always helpful. What are your takeaways or thoughts on this? My thoughts is that I really appreciate Felipe as a person. And I also appreciate that he's publishing this kind of data. Have you guys met Felipe? He's one of my favorite people. And he's one of my favorite people in the whole world. He's so nice. He's so conscientious and he's brilliant. And I will plug, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, Mike. I will plug his courses, his resuscitative TTE courses are some of the best designed courses I've ever seen in my life. And I put together courses and they, his are much better than mine. And I am happy that this data is there. It's not perfect. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we have any other data besides this that shows this correlation at all, even though it's not 100% perfect. Right, yeah, I think you're right. So I agree. I like that they tried to do this. I think cardiac arrest and ACLS is probably one of the most archaic things we do in medicine. Like it hasn't progressed a whole lot since we started doing it. And we keep coming back to just push harder, better, more. My concern with this, we just had a study that said point of care ultrasound doubles the time off the chest. We're going to ask people to do M mode, but I would like to see this applied in the time of and making sure we're still keeping that 10 second window. Ultrasound vendors, if you're listening, a lot of times as attendings, I wish I could measure things my residents didn't measure. And in a cardiac arrest situation, this is perfect. You don't have time to do M mode and get off the chest and get back on the chest. That's my concern with this. I don't think it's a bad idea. I like the concept of who maybe deserves a more aggressive, longer resuscitation and who maybe has lesser outcomes. I don't think we're there yet from this. My concern would be that we're asking people to do one more thing when we're already not great at just doing the basic level thing without worsening the one thing we do know improves survivability, which is minimal time off the chest. I think it's cool. I just don't think it's ready for prime time yet unless we can start doing post hoc measurements on images that we've acquired. Yeah. And then we have to ask ourselves, is that going to be useful? You know, depending how late you're doing it after the the arrest, it may be challenging. So I think that's really good to challenge the kind of the feasibility of doing this in real time. That's definitely a concern. Your point well taken, Cray. I do want to remind everybody that the ultrasound does not delay 
chest compressions. It's the people doing the ultrasounds that are delaying chest compressions. I have to put that in there just in case people don't know that data as well as we do. And then you can always do this thing where you, it's actually like the CASA protocol where you do your ultrasound, right? And you all you do is record the clip, get off the chest after the 10 seconds. And then you can actually measure, you know, if you hit like freeze, you can measure the width of the ventricle and then cycle back till it's the smallest and measure the width of the ventricle there during the two minutes of chest compressions. So there, there's ways around this to make this work without it potentially, you know, being associated with delays. 100% agree. Acquire yeah. and back on the chest. I agree. It's not the ultrasound's fault. I hate the studies where they're like, ultrasound doesn't save lives. Our interpretation, our use of the data, we're acquiring our ability to acquire the data. Like, I hate yeah. any study that says an ultrasound doesn't save a life. It's a machine. It's still up to us. All right. Well, yeah, I agree with you guys. I see this whole study as kind of advancing this hypothesis of pseudo PA and that that PA is is more heterogeneous than we think. And that's actually a, a pretty big takeaway because I think this is continuing to lay the groundwork for further research where maybe ultimately we can find out that a subset of these patients are going to benefit from different types of treatments. So I totally agree with the limitations that we mentioned, but this is still important stuff in moving forward cardiac arrest and ultrasound and cardiac arrest research in this group. So I like it. Okay, so let's summarize this. This is a retrospective cohort study of 84 patients out of hospital cardiac arrest PEA rhythm. They all got an ultrasound in the emergency department, and the primary finding was that the left ventricular fractional shortening, a measure of the LV systolic function, was positively correlated with ROSC OR1.04. Take-home points. This supports the hypothesis that out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and PEA is heterogeneous with regard to the degree of LV cardiac function, and that might contribute to the chance of ROSC. We still need some prospective research to reproduce this association and assess the qualitative or quantitative function of the LV is feasible while performing and interpreting an echo during cardiac arrest. Lastly, this previously validated scale used in this article for the quality of cardiac arrest images did have a high inter-rater agreement and and maybe that could be used in the future for further studies. So thanks so much to this fantastic slew of authors, incredible work, and thank you for listening to our podcast. We really appreciate it. If you want, head on over to ultrasoundgel.org to find out more. Otherwise, you can talk to any of us on Twitter. And until then, we will talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Are you like seriously banned from Twitter? <laughs>